0: Well, if you have your Bibles, you can get those open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where I'm going to be at this morning. And um, the title of my message this morning is Running the Race, Living Life in This World. There's an outline in your seat pocket there in front of you. If you want to use that, you can follow along with that. Also, you can go on to the uh, tacredding.info site and you can take your notes digitally there if you uh, have an electronic device to do that and then you can email them uh, back to yourself. As is my custom, I'm going to do something that's probably going to get me in trouble. Because I don't have permission to use this slide. (laughs) So that's Becky and Rylan Catlin and Vinaya Beats and Micah Erickson. And uh, it's appropriate that your family's here, man, that I get to actually put you up there in a the slide. Pretty good. Go for it. Yeah. I actually found one of Becky in high school. Um, it's on your Facebook page. I almost stole it. Oh man, that was, oh yeah. But I figured I better not push the bounce. Anyway, what, what's the purpose of this slide? Well, these guys were run, uh, doing a, how long was that race? It was 8K or something like that? 5K? 5K race for autism. And uh, guys like Rylan that, that uh, wrestled with that a little bit, and so it was to raise awareness and raise funds for that. And so Micah, Becky, and, and uh, Benel all ran that race. And, and, and also, if I remember right, just a little while ago, you at Crown College went back, was it Crown? University, of, okay, univ- I'll get it right, someday. Went back for your induction into the Hall of Fame for cross country, right? Woo-hoo! Yeah. So, I have no idea why you ran cross country, but you know, I, I, you know I, I look at guys like Ted, I see your posts, you do a lot of running and you go to the hills and things around here and you get back in these places that are really kind of cool and neat and stuff. And, and, and I just admire the, the, the ability that you guys have. Vanilla just I saw you sneak in, Vanilla, where'd you go? Oh, there you are, you're sneaking right in front of me. Honestly, I do know her, you know. Yeah, you just ran a half marathon, right? Just a little while ago. And so these people running all these areas. I don't run like that, okay? I don't like running at all, actually, okay? That's twice in a row in two sermons I said I don't like something, right? I'm making lots of friends this, this, this month. But I, I, I have to confess, I am running, though. I found out that at 59 years old, that the hills in Shasta County have gotten a lot steeper. And so as I chase fire up the hill with these these kids and stuff, I feel, you know, in order to keep up with them, I've got to stay in safe. So I run about a mile every other day and I run a half mile in the off days just to keep myself kind of going. And it helps. I still don't like it, but but I do it. But what what was interesting to me is like I don't know about for you guys and I kind of think it's that way and you did cross country some of the people I talked to and things. It gets hard in places throughout that, and you wonder why you're doing it, and you wonder if you want to keep going, and if you want to do this. Even when I'm doing my mile, it's like eight laps around the parking lot here. I'm, I'm at the third lap, and I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just do three laps today, you know? <laughs> and and I'll do one more lap, I just keep, and pretty soon it's like seven laps. Oh, we only got one more lap to go, you know? And, and, and I've finished it. And it's like, if I keep my eye fixed on that end goal, I can push through and get there, right? I, if I run that race with perseverance, I can get to that goal. And that's what we are called to do in this life, in running the race in this world. We are to keep our eyes not fixed on the temporary circumstances and stuff around us, and, and not what the world around us is doing, but we're to keep our eyes fixed on the prize, on the goal. In this case, it's, it's knowing Jesus and, and being with him forever. In eternity. That we are to run that race with perseverance. And so in our passage this morning, Paul is telling the Thessalonians that they need to run the race of life in where they are in this city of Thessalonica, in such a way as to win the prize, as to finish the race well. And he's going to tell them about five things that they need to maintain in their lives while they are living in this city of Thessalonica. And and these things apply to us as well. If you remember last week, we were in Acts chapter 18. And there Paul comes to Corinth. He'd already been in Philippi, that didn't go so well. He went into uh, Thessalonica, didn't think that went so well. He went to Berea, he got run out of Berea as well. He goes to Athens, he tries to share with some people there, he has limited success. He ends up in Corinth, city of about 600,000 people, full of idolatry, full of immorality, Full of all kinds of stuff and paul is a little probably despondent maybe a little depressed because it doesn't seem like he's made much of a difference and when he's there in corinth he meets priscilla and aquila as we saw last week and they kind of encourage him a little bit because they're co-workers and and he begins to to work with them and then he's preaching in the synagogue on the weekend and then timothy and silas finally catch up to paul because he had left them in berea and Timothy and Silas continued to nurture the church in Berea as well as the one in Thessalonica. And they give Paul this report about what's happening with this little church in Thessalonica. And it, it energizes him, it encourages him because the report they give talks about this, this little church. It's kind of like they came up to Paul and said, Hey, um, remember that little church, that little band of believers that you planted in Thessalonica that you were shaking your head going, This is not going to work out so well? Well, guess what? They're growing. They're, they're making an impact for Christ in this city, and Paul's like, really? I'm taking a little license here, but you can kind of see him, him maybe doing this, right? And he's energized, and so he sits down to write this letter, 1 Thessalonians. It was written when he was in Corinth, as after Timothy and Silas had come to him, and he writes this first letter to encourage them in their faith, because the city in which they're living in, in Thessalonica, is full of immorality. It's full of idolatry. It's full of all kinds of stuff going on where people are saying that these behaviors are right and good and they're acceptable. They were contrary behaviors to the gospel. And so Paul writes to encourage them so that they will not be sucked in to all of the stuff that's going on around them. Thessalonica was a city that had temple prostitution had all kinds of sexual immorality going on, had all kinds of of just crummy stuff going on. And so Paul feels this need to not only encourage them to continue to run the race, but to also affirm what they've already done in following the Lord. And so we pick up our story here in verse 1 of chapter 4. Verses 1 through the first part of verse 3, we read this. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you be sanctified. Paul begins, before he gets into these these five areas he wants them to maintain, he wants to affirm the fact that they are already living as they were taught they are already living countercultural to the people around them. See, places like Thessalonica and Corinth were not friendly to the gospel because the gospel stood in opposition to the kinds of lifestyle that the people wanted to lead, the things that they were calling good, things that, that were not appropriate for God's people to call good. Does any of this sound vaguely familiar? Does it sound maybe a little bit about like what we have going on today? Things that 40 years ago, Glenn, sorry, that you would never have thought anybody would call good are more than accepted without even so much as a twitch today, right? And so here is this little church. And Paul wants to encourage them because they need to stand firm with all of this that's going on. And and he tells them that they need to be sanctified. The word sanctified means to be set apart, to be different from, to be holy. Not to be conformed to all of this going on over here, but to be conformed to God. To be conformed to his image. They need to run this race in the middle of this city by keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus. Look at what the author of Hebrews writes When we are running this race in life with all of this stuff going on around us that is, that is in opposition to the gospel, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, not down at our feet. Yeah, what happens if you watch your feet and you run like this? You don't see what's in front of you, right? You run into a sign. I, I remember when I was in junior high. I wasn't the brightest kid in junior high. And then we were, we had gone from our junior high school to the high school in preparation for our graduation ceremony. And as we were walking back from the high school, it was like five, six blocks, whatever it was. And we were walking back up the street on the sidewalk and I did what every smart eighth grader would do. I turned and looked like this while I was walking like this. I can miss that stand now. Back then I couldn't. I walked right into a street sign, I like guess. I didn't want anybody to know it, so I just didn't know. I just kept going, right? You, just, you don't acknowledge that kind of thing. Later on when you get home, how oh, that hurt kind of thing. And you're not going to cry. There's no way an 8th grade boy is going to cry, right? That ain't going to happen. I sure wanted to. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. God also wants us to be set apart. That's sanctification. He doesn't want us to be conformed to the world around us. He wants us to be transformed. Laura read for us earlier, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Actually, I think Sophie read this passage, which says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. Both Paul and 1 Thessalonians and the author of Hebrews here are saying, look, our goal is to live to please God. Not to to please him in the way that somehow we're trying to earn his favor to to make sure we get into heaven. And we can't earn that. That is strictly by grace. But we, to please him so that his name may be magnified, so that the nations of the earth might see Jesus. So that his name is proclaimed in glory not through mud and garbage. We live in such a way to to please and to magnify, to exalt. His name would be the idea. It says that we need to live that way, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And then Paul is entering into this conversation with the Thessalonians to say to them, now what I want you to do is maintain five areas of your life as you seek to not be conformed to the pattern of the Thessalonians, the people in that city around you. And the first one is this, is to maintain integrity in one's personal sex life. Verses 3b through verse 8 say this, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. The culture in Thessalonica was one, as I said, of uh, they had temple prostitutes. That, would, that, that it, was, it was the goal of, of, of men to go after the temple prostitutes and somehow that would sanctify them in, in, in a weird religious sense. That they also had multiple partners, which the norm. All kinds of deviant sexual activity were the, were the norm in Thessalonica. And, and, and Paul is telling the Thessalonians that this is not proper for God's people. In essence, what he is saying here is that sex is only appropriate and rightly experienced in a heterosexual marital relationship. That any other engagement of sex outside of that is wrong. It's fornication. It's sin. And he's saying that that you are to not abuse this gift. And the abuse can take several forms. The abuse can be that of, of a of a man taking advantage of his wife in a way that is not good and right and that, that, that dishonors her. Or a woman that takes advantage of her husband and dishonors him. It, it, can be, it can be that where a man or a woman engage in pornography and dishonor the marriage and the sexual relationship. It can be all of these things and more. And he tells them, I need you to exercise self-control over your bodies. I need to not, you need to not give in to the lustful desires because, folks, we have a sin nature. We have a sin nature that wants to wage war against the spirit in us. Scripture writes about this. And and Paul has a real good summary about how to take care of that little battle. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says this. Walk by the spirit... And I tell you, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And he goes on to describe what the flesh looks like. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, um, impure thoughts, et cetera, et cetera, And he also goes on to describe what walking by the Spirit looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And because we have the Spirit of God living in us, because the Spirit of God had come on the Thessalonians, they, as well as we, can overcome succumbing to these kinds of temptations and mess up the plan that God had for sex and marriage. God is the author of sex. And he has designed it to be experienced and enjoyed in that heterosexual marriage relationship. Paul goes on to say that there's going to be punishment, there's going to be fallout if we engage outside of what God has designed. It's not up to us to judge people on that fallout, by the way. But it is my responsibility to stand here before you and say, there is a consequence. And I can't make a list of the consequences, but just to say, we've seen some of them, haven't we? Maybe even you've had... Family members or people you've worked with that they have had marital, extramarital affairs, or somebody that's been trapped in this neuro-pornography, whatever it is, and it has destroyed family relationships, it has destroyed churches as leaders have fallen into this trap. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, Don't go there. God's giving you the ability to control your body, do it. For those that are single, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. God's plan for the sexual relationship is to be in marriage. And the same affirmation he gives to married couples about not experiencing that outside of the marriage for singles is don't experience it until you're married. If there's anything outside of that, it's going to be sin. After he talks about maintaining sexual purity in the marriage relationship, he moves on to the second one which is this to maintain a loving unself to, to maintain loving unselfishly and pursuing this all the more to maintain loving unselfishly and pursuing this all the more verses 9 and 10 say this now about your love for one another We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. What's interesting in in this passage is the first word that Paul uses for love here, and it's actually translated in the NIV, brotherly love, is the word philia and it is that that love for a brother or sister but then the, the other two times that he uses love here in this passage he changes the form of the word he goes from using philia to using agape and it's that agape is that godly love it is that unselfish sacrificial love it it's a love that does not seek its own interests but the interests of others. It looks to seek what it can give rather than what it can get. It's interesting that in Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 16, the passage Laura read for us this morning, when Paul talks about the body building itself up in love, the word he uses there is agape. As the body is unselfish with each other, as the body seeks to sacrifice for one another, as, as the members of the body seek to give to each other unselfishly, it becomes more mature and complete and not lacking in anything. Paul could have used any other word for love there. There's four of them that are primarily used. He chose agape to use there in that passage in Ephesians. And he chose to make this shift from brotherly love in verse 9 to agape love, to to say that, yes, you're loving like brothers and you're doing that throughout the region is great, but press in deeper and pursue a sacrificial love for all the brethren and all of those throughout Macedonia. Don't only be looking out for yourselves and your own interests, but for the interests of the other people as well. Paul wants his readers to grow in this unselfish love and build each other up in it. This is what only God can provide, and the Holy Spirit cultivates that in us if we just simply surrender to his working. The Thessalonians were living in a world that was largely selfish and self-centered. They wanted their freedoms, they wanted what they want, and they wanted when they wanted. Again, does that sound kind of familiar? God's people are not to be that way. Yeah, we have freedoms. But Paul says, don't use your freedoms in such a way to indulge this selfish nature. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 6, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, we have lots of freedoms. That doesn't mean we should use them. Because if they violate the principle of agape love, that should be our red flag. That whatever that freedom is that we're about to engage in is going to step on the toes of a brother or sister, we better think twice about doing it. This brings to mind for me two a, a passage actually that where Jesus summarized what the two greatest commands were. And they were this in Matthew twenty-two verses thirty-seven through forty. He was asked, "What is the greatest commandment?" Jesus replied. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. If we run this race of life, we need to keep in fact that our first and primary objective is to love God with our whole being. That we please him in everything. That we glorify him with our heart, soul, mind, and as Luke's version records, strength but we also need to love our neighbor as ourselves. We need to love our neighbor as Jesus would love them. How did Jesus love us? He gave his life sacrificially for us. He hung on a cross in our place so we wouldn't have to, so that we'd get salvation. That's what Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5 are all about. Because in that passage... Paul says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that in Christ Jesus, who, and he goes on to describe what Jesus did, coming to earth, going to the cross, raising from the dead, rescuing us from the tyranny of sin. That is to be our attitude. We are to have that same kind of attitude to one another and to the world around us. Not put our lot in with them. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. So he says to them, maintain integrity in your personal sex life. Maintain loving unselfishly and pursue that. And the third thing he tells him to maintain is occupational and financial responsibility. Verses 11 and 12. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Apparently, some of the Thessalonians had decided to stop working. People are kind of um, uh, argumentative about why this is, but the common theme seems to be that they had some understanding about the second coming of Jesus and that they had understood that that it was gonna happen like next week, kind of thing, or next month. It was gonna happen within their lifetime. And and so many of them just stopped working. I mean, why work? Jesus is coming next week, not gonna matter anyway. The bills that come due two weeks from now, I'm not going to have to worry about, right? So they just quit working. And then so, some things, this report kind of gets back to Paul. And, and he, he says, wait a minute, that's not what you're to be about. Yeah, Jesus is coming again. And yes, he is going to rescue you from, from this earth and establish a new kingdom. But that doesn't mean you stop working while you're here. That doesn't mean you stop being unselfish. That doesn't mean that you stop being sacrificial. And so he encourages these people to get to work and be engaged in their community so that that the outsiders might see Jesus. He also encourages them to work so that they won't be a burden to those in their midst as well. Remember when Paul came to Corinth? What was the first thing he did? We looked at that last week. He went to work with Priscilla and Aquila, making tents to support himself. Now, Paul writes in Scripture about the fact that there is a right of those who preach the gospel should make their living from the gospel. But Paul chose to not exercise that right. And he said, I chose to not exercise that right. I could have, but I didn't want to be a burden to you, he says, because I didn't want anything to get in the way of the gospel. And I had this ability to be bivocational. So I'm going to make tents during the week, and in the weekend, I'm preaching. That's what he did. And so he says, you need to be busy working even though Jesus is coming. He's not talking about people on unemployment necessarily who want to work, but they just can't find a job. Or people that are, um, uh, people that are handicapped and can't work. That's understandable. What he's talking about is the people who are perfectly capable of working and have job opportunities don't take them because they don't want to work. Those are the kind of people he's describing here. And he says, get off your tush and get to work. You can insert any other adjective you want. Colossians 3.17 tells us, that whatever we do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. All is a big word, three letters, but it's a huge word. It doesn't leave much room for anything. All means all. No negotiation there. Paul then moves on from this, from the idea of maintaining occupational and financial responsibility to maintaining hope. The long passage here, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Follow along as I read. Brethren and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring them with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's a whole lot in this passage, and I don't have time to unpack everything in here, all about the second coming, and you get into the the the, the rapture and the catching up in the church and, and you can start talking about premillennial, postmillennial, mid tribulations, whatever stuff. That's for another time. Okay? We're not gonna get into that this morning. What I want to point out to you is this. He tells them, apparently the Thessalonians were a little confused because some of their loved ones in Christ had died and Jesus hadn't come back yet. And in their understanding, they thought Jesus was going to come back before anybody in the church died. So now they're thinking these people missed out. They're not going to get the prize because they didn't finish the race. So they thought. And Paul says, no, you're misunderstanding who controls death here. Death has no power over Jesus. He has conquered it. And what's going to happen at the end is those people who died in Christ, he's going to raise them up and they're going to join him. And then those of us who are still alive are going to join. It's all going to be one big party together. And and he says that the dead are going to rise first and then it's going to be those who are living. So hey, don't lose hope. They're going to be rescued. They're going to be saved. They're going to be part of the party. You don't have to grieve over them like men with no hope, he says what's interesting about this is he's not telling the Thessalonians they can't grieve. Grief is normal and natural. When we lose loved ones, it it raises up in us grief, mostly because a lot of experiences and a lot of time that we have spent with them on this earth is over. We're opening a new chapter of our lives now. And we wanted more. And you know, and maybe in some cases we're a little jealous too because they go home to be with the Lord and we go, well, that wasn't very fair for them to leave me behind. What's up with that? And so Paul says, it's okay to grieve, but don't grieve like people in the world who have no hope. I, I really feel for the people who believe that death is just a ceasing to exist and nothing else because that's hopeless existence. In, in my mind, that's a hopeless existence. What's the point? And so he tells them, don't lose the hope. You're going to see him again. There's those of us who have family members and loved ones who don't know Christ, or at least as far as we know, didn't know Christ, and they died. What happens to them? The only answer I'm going to give you is this. There's still hope. God is still God. You Remember the thief on the cross with Jesus? Right up until that last moment, Jesus offered him salvation. We have to leave that in God's hand. What will happen with them is his sovereign will. The thought of loved ones spending eternity apart from God is not a pleasant thought. None of us like it. We really would rather not think about it. I get it. But the truth of the matter is that God will take care of it. And he will also comfort us because he is still the God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 1.3 He is sovereign. He is all-knowing. He's got it figured out. That is something that just blows our mind when we try to figure out how the love of God enters into that. But watering it down doesn't solve the problem like some have done. So he tells them to maintain hope and then the final area that he wants them to maintain is this. Maintain a readiness for Christ's second coming. This is a long passage, but I only want to highlight the first three verses of chapter 5, and verse 11, which say this. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, for they will not escape. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. after they were confused about the, the resurrection order, or the dead and the living and all that, they were also confused about when Jesus was coming again. And some were confused about the second coming and they, they thought eminent to mean like tomorrow or within 48 hours or within the next month. As opposed to eminent meaning at any moment. But you're not going to know about it beforehand. And the... And the the kind of language that's used here is the language, of the idea that that time when Jesus returns is gonna come like a thief. Let me answer this question, That's a rhetorical question. So if you knew that your house was gonna be broken into and this person was gonna come at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, today, where would you be? Would you be sitting here? Probably not, okay? You would be taking some steps to catch that person, okay? And and so you you would make ready. Do thieves announce that they're going to come and rob your home? I can tell you for a fact they don't. (laughs) Just to let the rest of you in on that little joke, my house, my garage was burglarized last October while we were on vacation. Somebody decided they needed $4,000 worth of tools worse than I did, okay? Did they tell me they were going to do that? Nope. I wish they'd left a business card, that would have been nice. <laughs> you see, we, we, we don't, but we take precautions, don't we? We lock our doors. We, we try to do the things that we can do to try to discourage that kind of behavior. We try to make things safe, and that's okay to do. This is the idea Paul wants the Thessalonians to do. He wants them to be ready for the coming even though they don't know exactly what hour it is. How many of you have heard various people giving various dates and times when Jesus is returning? Yeah. It seems like almost every other year now, right? Or maybe more so. The one I remember the most was a guy standing up here at the corner of a market And Lake, with a sign, says, Jesus is coming tomorrow. And that was in 1999, October 1999. The next day, he was standing there on the street. No, he wasn't. Never (laughs) mind. We cannot know the day and the What makes people, or us, think? This is my little soapbox for one second. What makes them think that if the Son of Man did not know the time, but only the Father, that they thought they could know the time? I still have never understood that reasoning because it's illogical. He wanted the Thessalonians to be working until the Lord comes. In these four passages right here, in Matthew 25, Luke 12, the first two anyway, they're about, one's about the parable of the ten virgins and one's about the wise manager basically those are about being ready, that the bridegroom has gone away in the parable of the ten virgins, and, and the, ones, the five of them had enough oil to be ready and be there all the time, and five weren't prepared. And they had to go away, and then the bridegroom came, and, and, and the five missed out, and the five that were ready were, were ushered in. In the parable of the wise manager, he was given charge over all of his, uh, uh, of his owner's estate, and he went away for a while, and his job was to run the estate. And if he did it well, when the manager came back, he would find the things that he had done. But if he had beaten slaves and not taken care of them, not did what his master would do, then he was going to be cut to pieces. The parable of the talents is the same kind of idea. The master went away for a while, left some servants in charge of his money. They were supposed to invest it. They were supposed to do some things with it while he was gone. When he came back, The ones that did what they were supposed to got rewarded. The ones that didn't. The one that didn't was punished. The idea here is that Paul is telling the Thessalonians and ultimately us that we need to be found waiting, watching, and working until Jesus comes because we don't know the day or the hour. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador do? He represents the government of his country in a foreign land. We are representing Jesus here in this foreign land. This is not our final home. This is a stop on the way to our final home, eternity with Christ. It has been said that the one sure thing about when the Lord will come again is that we do not know exactly when he will come again. Think about that one for a minute. Matthew 24 14 gets us a little bit close. Which says, "This gospel we preach to all the ends of the earth, and then the end shall come." But you know what? God's the one in charge of that. That's when we know it will happen, and how it's preached to all people is going to be an interesting way to see God pull that one off. Okay, as the worship team comes up, let me summarize this for you with this. The purpose of this passage here is to give us encouragement in the midst of the chaos of this world around us. Just like Paul gave the Thessalonian brothers and sisters. We live in a time when wrong is being called right and taking a stand for morality and integrity is slandered. And we can look to these areas of encouragement from Paul to give us a shot in the arm. And we don't have to do this alone. God has said, we don't have to do it alone. I want to close with this video. It's from the Olympics in 1992 in Barcelona with a young sprinter who was favored to win the gold medal. I think it speaks for itself. Watch what happens.